How are we doing today? Good. It's good to see a packed house. And uh, while you're uh, getting settled in, I want you to grab your Bible and turn into the book of Galatians. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the, the verses on the screen this morning. Um, like some of you, uh, I, I grew up in a little bit of a world, and then especially my, some of my college experience and uh, early days of ministry where going to movies was frowned upon. And um, so I was really thankful when the VHS came out, because what I couldn't see at the theater, I could rent. Um, but uh, my, my favorite movie, so Amy and I have been taking the last 16 years and making up for all of that, but my favorite movie uh, of all times is the movie Braveheart. And I, I don't know if, if you've seen that movie. Um, but, uh, some of you Scottish people. Um, but it, it's the story of William Wallace, who was a Scottish common man who fights for his country's freedom from English rule, from, uh, you know, the, and it kind of takes place at the end of the 13th century. And, and when I see this movie, I, I want to throw on a kilt and go get in a, in a sword fight with somebody. Um, but if you haven't seen the movie, I'm, I'm about to give it away, and here's spoiler alert, ready? Um, but at the end of the movie, Wallace, he's captured by, by the English, and he's put on trial for high treason against the King of England, and after being found guilty, he's taken to the middle of, of London, the Tower of London, and he's going to be tortured, he's going to be executed by beheading, and he refuses, he refuses to submit to the King's uh, throne, he, forgets to, he refuses to beg for mercy, and so there's this very brutal scene at the end of the movie where he's half-hanged, he's racked, he's castrated, he's disemboweled, and the people who are there, who are cheering on this English magistrate who's carrying out all this torture, all of a sudden they begin to be just kind of swung towards William Wallace's side, and they begin to plead for mercy on his behalf. And finally, the magistrate offers him this moment where he says, all you have to do is cry out for mercy and all of this can end. And using his, the last strength that he could muster up in his body, the defiant William Wallace instead shouts out, freedom! And then they chop his head off. Um, and yet, we find out at the end of the, the movie that his death inspires Robert the Bruce, who is the king of Scotland to take up Wallace's fight for freedom, and he leads the Scottish people to military victory over the English on June 24, 1314, in the fields of Bannockburn, to once and for all gain freedom for all of the people of Scotland from English tyranny. And um, so I just gave away the end of the movie, so you don't have to see it. As I told you last week, the book of Galatians is a book about freedom. And, and the guy who wrote it, the Apostle Paul, like William Wallace, was a freedom fighter. He was obsessed with freedom. He was a man who had tasted it and experienced it and now was ready to, to go to war over the freedoms that he held dear to his heart. He actually wrote the book of Galatians, which was a letter to the people of Galatia, which is now modern-day Turkey, and it was a church that he had actually planted, and he wrote this letter to them not to fight for political freedom, but to defend spiritual freedom. This is a guy who was obsessed with seeing people free from things like guilt and shame and things like condemnation. He wanted to see people freed up from unnecessary religious rules and, and expectations. He was a man that was obsessed with helping people to be freed up from regret of, of the things that they had done in their past before Jesus. And so if you remember from last week, the Apostle Paul makes this very profound statement in Galatians 1, chapter 6, as he writes. He says, I'm astonished. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. You're so quickly deserting Christ, the one who called you 
and the grace of Christ and our turning to a different gospel. We find that Paul, he says, I'm, I'm angry and I'm astonished. Now, why was he in this predicament? Well, when Paul planted this church in Galatia, he laid a very specific scriptural foundation. This church was, 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 was founded upon the message of Jesus, on God, on spiritual freedom. And he, he didn't just plant a church in Galatia. Paul planted the gospel in Galatia. Now, some of you may be saying, what is the gospel? What's well, the good news? Gospel means good news. It's the good news about who Jesus is and how his death, burial, and resurrection provide spiritual freedom for people like you and me. Well, we know that, that after Paul planted the church in Galatia and he leaves to go to another town, a group of men called the Judaizers, they come in behind him and they preach a totally different message than the one that Paul preached. And it was a message that was actually leading people back into spiritual bondage, back into spiritual slavery. They believed that in order to receive salvation, you had to be circumcised. And so in chapter 1, Paul is frustrated, he's angry. Matter of fact, he's so angry that he says, if anyone, including an angel of heaven or even us, even myself, if we preach a message that's different than the one that was preached from the get-go, he says, let him be destroyed, let him be cursed. And so we find out there's a dispute in Galatia, in the, in the Galatian church. On one side of the dispute, we have Paul, the apostle Paul, who is saying that the gospel of faith in Christ is, 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 is a gospel that is, is founded in Christ alone, without works, for all people, of all cultures. And then on the other hand, we have this, this group of folks, his opponents, the Judaizers, claiming that, no, 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 not all Jewish people are Christians, but all Christian people in order to, to know Christ, they, be, they must become Jewish. And so we get into chapter 2. And Paul takes the first part of the chapter to defend his authority to make this point when it comes to the message of the gospel. And he says in the first 10 verses basically that, that I have the right to make this claim. I have the right to defend freedom because not only is this the message that I am preaching, but I am in agreement with all of the other apostles except one. There's one who opposes what I'm preaching. In verse 11, we find out who it is. It says, but when Cephas, now who is Cephas? Well, Cephas is the apostle Peter. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Paul, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, I want you to see what's happening here. You've got, you have the two most famous apostles of all time in opposition to one another. You have the apostle Paul who became a Christian after the death of Jesus in Acts chapter 9. He was actually commissioned by God, by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit to be an apostle. And then you have Peter. Peter was one of the original 12 disciples. He actually walked with Jesus. He was actually considered the chief of apostles. And here we find Paul is confronting him. Now, Why? What what has Peter done that is so bad that needs to be confronted? Well, Paul explains it to us very simply. Peter changed his eating habits. Now, when you hear that, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was. Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but now he was beginning to draw back. 
and separate himself from the Gentiles. You say, why is this such a big deal? Well, Old Testament law had this section of law called the clean laws. And the clean laws were for the Jewish people to follow in order to be clean and to be acceptable, to be in the presence of God for worship. And the Jewish people were not allowed to come into God's presence if they, had, if, if they ate certain foods. So there was no, no pulled pork sandwiches on the menu for the Jewish people back then. Also, they were not allowed to come into contact with people who would have been considered unclean. And that meant they were not allowed to come into contact with the Gentiles. Now, who are the Gentiles? Well, if you're here today and you are not Jewish, you are a Gentile. I don't care what color your skin is. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. And Peter had made a decision. He'd made a decision here in this church not to eat or associate with Gentiles. Even though Jesus taught in Mark chapter 7 that with his arrival that the law had been fulfilled, had been passed away, and God had to send, a, send Peter a vision to show him why these ceremonial laws were now, why they were now finished. If you remember from Acts chapter 10, Peter has this vision. And he sees a sheet coming down from heaven and it's filled with animals that were forbidden uh, to be eaten in the Old Testament by law. And, and he hears a voice that says, kill and eat. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And then next, Peter meets this Gentile man by the name of Cornelius who receives Christ. And the Bible tells us he is born again. And we read from Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and verse 35. It says, God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him. So I want you to understand that what happened to Peter in in the book of Acts was was a game changer because the apostle Peter had, had come to this realization that salvation is not just for the Jews, but it's for everyone. It's for all, it's for all Gentiles as well. In other words, salvation is available to anyone, anyone who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And then we get into Acts chapter 11 and we see Peter actually starting to eat with the Gentiles. And I mean, he's being, he's being criticized heavily at this point by the Jews. And so he makes eating with Gentiles a regular habit. And so we get into Galatians 2 and we find now that Peter is withdrawing from eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles. He's, he's, eating, he's eating food that used to be considered unclean. He's no longer wearing the traditional Jewish clothing. But when it comes to the Gentiles, Peter's pulling back. And his behavior was beginning to spread to the other Christians. It'd be like, it'd be like you saying, I, I'm going to eat at this barbecue restaurant after church and, and I'm going to eat a pork sandwich and I'm not going to wear a suit and tie to church any longer, but I'm not going to sit in the section of the restaurant with all the Christians who I don't really like how they dress. Like all the long-haired tattoo folks, I'm not going to sit with them. One moment we see, we see in the book of Acts, Peter eating with Gentiles and actually even arguing with other Jewish people that the Gentiles are now capable of receiving salvation. And here we get into the book of Galatians and he's refusing to eat with them again. So what does Paul do? Paul confronts him. Verse 11, it says, Peter comes to Antioch and Paul confronts him. And he confronts him to his face. And I like this. Notice Paul doesn't say, I had a problem with him, so I decided to call him out on Facebook. I had a problem with Peter, so I sent him a scathing email. He didn't call him out on Twitter. He didn't send him a nasty blog post or write something about him. He confronted him scripturally. He got in his face. He spoke to him man to man. And then he recounts what happened in verse 13. He's writing about what happened between he and Peter. He said, 
to him. He said, Peter, I looked at him in the face. I got in his face man to man. And I said, Peter, you are a hypocrite. You're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Now, what was Peter guilty of? Well, Peter was guilty of legalism. He was guilty of spiritual elitism and guilty of a little bit of racism. Now, what is legalism? Tim Keller defines it this way. Legalism is looking to something besides Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God. Legalism always results in pride and fear psychologically or sociologically and exclusion and strife socially, psychologically and socially. Remember the issue that we talked about last week? We, we talked about how the Judaizers had come along and they were preaching that the only way the Gentiles could know Christ truly was they had to be circumcised. And Paul calls it, he said, that, that's pure legalism. Anything that you add to Christ alone to receive acceptance and to be made right before God to receive forgiveness is legalism. So why did Peter fall back into legalism? Well, Paul says it in verse 12. He says, fear. Peter fell back into legalism because he was afraid of the Judaizers. He was afraid of the people that were requiring circumcision for salvation. He fell back into legalism and spiritual elitism and even a a bit of racism because he was afraid of criticism. He was afraid of what others might think, so he took the easy path, which was pride and exclusion. It was kind of like saying, I'll be in the same restaurant with them, but there's no way I'm going to eat with them. Because I'm clean, and they're not clean. I'm clean before God, they're not clean. I'll sit in church with them, but there's no way that I'm going to invite them into my home for a meal because I'm not bringing this kind of uncleanliness into my house. Now, I want to give you a little bit of uh, a little test, and and this may be tough for some of you. I I actually uh, might be getting ready to thin the herd a bit. I I want to show you a couple pictures. I'm curious. This guy right here, uh, we see him, a guy like him, we walk through the streets of Atlanta or New York or wherever we might be, Detroit. How many of you would eat a meal with this homeless guy? How many of you would actually invite him into your home? You don't have to raise your hand, okay? I, I, I wonder, would Jesus eat a meal with this guy? If Jesus, Jesus didn't have a house, but if he had a house, would he, would he invite this guy into his home? Would he hang out with him? How many of you would eat a meal with this family? You'd invite this family into your home. Would Jesus eat with this family? Yeah. Okay, how about this group right here? This is, uh, it was tough for us to find a tattoo picture. This is Blink 182. Uh, these guys are full of tattoos. How, how many of you would have these guys for a meal? Sunday afternoon barbecue. Come on over to the house. Would Jesus eat with these guys? He would. I, I want to show you something. Um, I, I, we, I really wrestled with showing you this. Um, but I decided yesterday to go ahead and do this. I, I want to show you. Go, go ahead and show the next picture. Um, that's my wife's foot. Okay, now, the only way that my wife would let me put her foot on a screen like this is she had to have her nails painted and it had to be in a nice sandal, okay? <laughs> now, I want to tell you this. You can t- my wife has a tattoo on her foot. And for several years, she wanted to get a tattoo. And, I, and I'll be honest with you, I was opposed to it. Now, she could have done it and I would have said fine. But I, I, I just was opposed to it. Now, and I'll tell you why. I was afraid of criticism. I really, I really was. I was afraid that I'd be criticized. And, you know, and I'm, I'm like, Amy, being a pastor of a church like this brings enough criticism. And I'm like, please don't do this to me. <laughs> and a few years ago, uh, we went through 
a lot of criticism. We went through a season where the two of us, our family, we were just bombarded with criticism. And in the midst of the criticism, God was just so ministering to us and speaking to us and put a verse on her heart, which really impacted me in a big way. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, which is what her tattoo is. And it says this in the New Living Translation. It says, may you experience the love of Christ, which is what we experienced through that time. Though it is too great to understand fully, then you'll be made complete with all of the fullness of life and power that comes from God. And I surprised her a couple years ago and I got her a, a gift certificate. I did my research and I, I gave her a tattoo. And she's like, are you kidding me? And then I watched her go through a lot of pain. And, uh, and, and I'll be honest, I'm not a big tattoo guy. I don't have one. People go, are you going to get one? No, I, I don't pay for pain, okay? <laughs> but I love hers because it means something dear to her heart. And I had to get over the thought, the unscriptural thought, and just a lot of the thoughts of, I'm going to be criticized for this. Well, I've been criticized for worse. Here's the thing. If we're not careful without even trying, without even wanting to, we can fall into Peter's sin. We can, be, we, we can, we can begin to manufacture self-esteem by comparing ourselves and our preferences to the preferences of others. We, we can begin to look down on others thinking, hey, you know what, I'm clean, you're not clean. We can fall into legalism out of fear of what people may think instead of embracing freedom. But here's the problem with this kind of thinking. When we do that, we're not living in line with the truth of the gospel. The gospel tells us that we are all unclean without Christ. But with Christ in our lives, we're all, we've been made righteous. We are all accepted. We are all clean in Christ. And I want you to listen to the point that Peter makes, that Paul makes to Peter in verse 15. He says, you and I are Jews by birth, but not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in in Christ Jesus Christ so that, that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. He says, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. In other words, Paul says to Peter, God did not have fellowship with you on the basis of your race, on your preferences, or even your cultural practices. Even though you were a good person, Peter, even though you're, you're a devout Jew, your race and your preferences had nothing to do with your salvation. So how in the world... Can you judge others? And how in the world can you choose to fellowship with others on the basis of race and customs and cultural preferences? Now, let me give you a little bit more honesty, if if I could, for a moment. Most of you, and I've shared this quite a bit, that I I grew up around a lot of legalism. But there was also, in my world, um, a bit of spiritual elitism. I grew up independent, fundamental Baptist. And I I have a lot of friends in that world, I have a problem with them. But as a kid, I remember driving past all of these churches on Sunday morning and thinking, man, all these churches, all these people, even other kinds of Baptists, they've, they've got it all wrong. They're going down a wrong path. I mean, I was a kid. I looked down on my nose at other people because in my mind, as, even as a child, independent fundamental Baptists had it all figured out. I and mean, we had a corner on the gospel. We had a corner on real truth and how to really please God. I, matter of fact, I don't really remember my family even hanging out with anyone outside of this world. And it's interesting because it looks a little bit different nowadays, but I see this kind of attitude continuously popping up in the religious world all over the place. If you don't embrace a specific brand of theology, then you're not quite as smart as the rest of us. Or if you do embrace this theology, then you're haughty and arrogant. If you live in a nice house or you drive a nice car, then you're worldly and you're out of focus with Scripture, even though you're a believer. Or 
You know, a true follower of Jesus sells everything and gives it away to the poor. That's what a true follower… If you're not like that, then you're truly not in line with Scripture. Or I'm, If you don't embrace or, or you're not at the same level of passion with Christ that I am, that somehow you're not as good as I am. I mean, as you know, Westridge, we're a church that's involved in church planting, and we're involved in community transformation through things like community makeover and Hope for Christmas, and we, we invest a lot of our resources into global endeavors like providing clean water to places where waterborne diseases run rampant. But we have to be very careful as a church that we don't judge others because they don't feel called to those same endeavors. We have to be careful that we, you know, we're, we wear jeans and shirts untucked, and, you know, we have to be careful that we don't, look, we don't, we don't go to Ryan's on Sunday afternoon to look down on everyone else. Because all of a sudden we feel like we may have some freedoms that they don't have. We have to be careful that we don't develop a bit of frustration with those that don't share the same passion and heart for the things that we're passionate about. My friend Larry Osborne says if if we're not careful, we can accidentally become Pharisees. Accidental Pharisees are made up of people just like you and me, people who love God, love the Scriptures, and are trying their best to live by them. The thing to note about accidental Pharisees is just that. They're accidental. They're like eating dinner at Denny's. No one plans to go there. You just end up there. (laughs) Now, I want to take a moment also, and I I just want to address racism. Because while Peter was being legalistic and acting a bit spiritually elite, you could also say he was being a bit of a racist. Now... I'll tell you, like, like most of you, I grew up around some racism. I lived a little over a mile from the Detroit city line until I was 14, and quite honestly, I didn't even, I didn't even know a black person until I was in 10th grade. And my first friend that was black was a guy named Billy Griffith. We moved to Arlington, Texas, and uh, I played football and I was in the band, and Billy was the only person that I knew that did the same. He was in football and played in the band, and so Billy had this really cool orange Dodge Charger, and uh, I remember, I mean, it was significant for me, because I, I remember sitting in a car with him going to lunch, going, I don't think I've ever hung out with a black guy before. And he introduced me to, for the very first, I'd never heard rap music until I got in Billy's car, and all of a sudden I'm introduced to the Sugar Hill Gang. <laughs> Tonto, jump on it, jump on it, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And Billy had some, he had an awesome speaker system. I'm telling that dude. And over time, I got to know more minorities and through college, got to know more, more, and it was just, but I remember back in the late 60s and early 70s, I mean, I, again, I grew up outside of Detroit and my family, we were in the late, we lived in Detroit and then in the late 60s, like most other white families moved out of the city. But I remember even as a child watching on the news in the late 60s and early 70s, a lot of the civil unrest things that were going on. And, and I grew up afraid of minorities until I met Billy. And then started, God just began to work in my heart. Back in 1996, my dad and I, uh, he was pastoring a church in Michigan and I was a youth pastor in Virginia. And we decided to come here for a Promise Keepers pastor's event at the Georgia Dome. And uh, that was a very significant moment for me because it was where God really birthed in my heart the idea to, to start Westridge. But it was a significant moment for my dad as well. And I never, I never saw my dad as being racist. I really didn't. I mean, he just, he just man, that guy just loved people. I wish, for those of you that never met him, could have gotten to know him. He's such a great man. 
But here we are sitting at 1996 at the Georgia Dome, 42,000 pastors, and there was a moment in the Promise Keepers event where they had this, this time of racial, racial reconciliation. And I, I thought it was good, but I, I mean, I wasn't really moved by it because I didn't sense it was an issue for me. And so, but my dad was stirred by it. And during this time where they had guys coming forward, pastors coming forward in, in a moment of repentance, my dad steps out and goes forward, and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And he goes to the front and gets down on his knees, and I'm looking at him coming back, and I'm not, and I'm not exaggerating when I tell you this. He is finding every black guy and Hispanic guy he can find. He's hugging all of them. And he comes back to the seat, and I said, I said what was that all about? And he said, God just revealed to me, he said, I grew up with some racism in my heart for minorities, blacks, Hispanics, Jews. It's part of, you know, just my generation. And he said, I just want to be freed from this. And so we're leaving the Georgia Dome, and I'm not kidding you. He's hugging every, any black guy he can find. He's hugging them. And he's apologizing. Tears running down his face. We get on MARTA. He's hugging guys who weren't even at the conference. <laughs> it was an interesting ride home. Where is legalism and spiritual elitism and racism? Where is it rooted? It's rooted in sin. And of course, in fear. And I want to tell you that the gospel is not exclusive of race. It's not exclusive of religion or culture or gender or even someone with a specific brand of sin that you may be opposed to. There is an open invitation for all who have sinned, which means everyone, to find grace and mercy and righteousness and forgiveness at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we all, we all need to repent of some legalism and spiritual elitism and probably some racism. And Paul, in this scripture, he's simply saying to Peter, Peter, your legalism and your your spiritual elitism is out of line with the gospel. Peter, you've been justified by Christ. And so why do you care about what other people are thinking about you? Why do you need to be justified by anyone else? In other words, Peter, you don't need approval of these men. You've already been approved by Christ. It should be enough. If you've been undeservedly showered by God's grace, why, Peter, would you want to hold God's grace back from other people? So with all that said, what, what, what did, why were the Judaizers so opposed to Paul? What was going on here? What rationale did Paul's opponents use against him? He says, but suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ and then we're found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. He says, rather, I'm a sinner. If I rebuild the old system of law, I already tore down. The English Standard Version uses the words made right. Some of your Bibles use the word justified. It's the legal term justification, which means to declare someone righteous. And the Judaizers were trying to make this case against Paul, that since justification by faith eliminated the law, then it encouraged sinful living. And the Judaizers said, they said that, listen, based on Paul's theology... This is the case they're making. A person could simply believe in Christ for salvation and then just do as much as they wanted to do whatever they please. They could just sin as much as they wanted to. And we actually see a lot of people taking advantage of their salvation today. I mean, trampling on the grace of God. And it was the same back then, I'm sure. And so you can actually see how the Judaizers would want to make this argument But this argument gets Paul pretty fired up and he says, listen, if salvation were simply an invitation to receive eternal life and then sin all you want, then Christ would actually be promoting sin. 
said, it's not so. He says, we are justified, we are made right, we are declared righteous, not by works, not by law, not by obedience, but by faith alone in Jesus Christ. He becomes our righteousness. We're no longer condemned by sin or guilt or shame or condemnation. When we receive Christ, we are free. And that freedom should make us want to live for Christ, not to sin, but to live for him out of love. And so, how can we live a life of freedom? How, 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 do, we, how do we do this? How do we embrace this freedom that, that, we've, that we've, we've, we've received when we receive salvation? I mean, do, do we sin all we can just, and just live it up like some people do? No. Do we go back and grab hold of all these man-made religious rules and regulations and make them up on the fly just out of fear or whatever? No. Do we embrace Old Testament law? Absolutely not. I love this. Read, look, look, read this with me. For Peter says, or Paul says, For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. Verse 20. My old, self, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this eternal body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. It's one of my favorite passages of all time. This passage describes how we can experience true freedom in this world and in this life as followers of Jesus. And very simply, Paul says, listen, we need. If we're going to truly experience freedom, true spiritual freedom in this world, in this life, we have got to shake off legalism. We've got to get rid of spiritual elitism. And we've got to get the racism behind us. And we need to stop working for our salvation and stop working to keep our salvation and stop working to gain the acceptance of Christ, which is all about self. And we need to die to self and let Christ live through us. Paul says, the old Paul was crucified with Christ. In other words, self-righteous, self-centered, arrogant, egotistical Saul, Paul, died. He said, when I received salvation by grace through faith, I stopped trying to be the savior of my own life. I stepped off the throne of trying to be, of, uh, to be the ruler of my own life, and I yielded the throne of my life to Jesus Christ. And so it's no longer me who lives. It's Jesus Christ living his life through me. In other words, every bit of strength, every bit of energy, every bit of power that I have to live the Christian life successfully, it's actually Christ living through me. See, the reason why we struggle to live the Christian life in freedom is because self keeps getting in the way. Legalistic self keeps creeping back in. Spiritual elite self, racist self, prideful self, worried self, fearful self, narcissistic self, self-centered self, sinful self. All of that is old self. And the Bible says it was crucified with Christ. So you might be asking, why do I keep struggling with this? Why do I keep feeling like I'm in bondage to this stuff? Listen, even though you've been saved, Jesus Christ is not going to pry his way into your life. He's not going to force himself on you. Paul says it's a matter of living our new lives in Christ by faith in the Son of God. It's faith. The same faith that, that, that allowed you to receive salvation. It's, it's faith that releases God's power in our lives to help us to live the victorious Christian life. Paul says this faith comes from Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. In other words, if he loved me enough to give himself for me, then he loves me enough to live his life in me. 
And so living, living in freedom is a faith walk. It's faith. The same faith that brought you to salvation and justification is the same faith that's going to lead you every single day to live in freedom, to walk victoriously in this life, to, to experience God's power, to die to the old self, to put legalism and spiritual elitism and racism and all that behind us, to live in obedience to Scripture, to overcome fear and to become more and more and more like Jesus, which is the word sanctification. As we experience our faith in God and as we exercise our faith in God, this is what happens. He releases his power in our lives. And when that happens, what happens? We begin to allow others to experience freedom as well. His love begins to flow through us. I'll tell you, this has been a journey for me. I mean, my life has been a journey of God helping me to shake off legalism, spiritual elitism, maybe even a little bit of racism along the way, prideful self, narcissism, whatever it is. And you know what's amazing? When I start shake, continuing to shake off that old self, it allows me to let others live in spiritual freedom as well. Because I'm not afraid of being accepted by others. I'm not accept, afraid of being accepted by you. I've been accepted by Jesus. And that's good enough for me. I want us to bow our heads. I, honestly, I, I'd be really surprised if there's a person in this room that can't relate to something that we were talking about this morning. And so if you're here this morning and this is where you are in your life, I mean, then you're just, you're stuck in something and maybe it's been rooted in fear, which ultimately, I mean, goes back to sin somewhere, but, but it's, maybe it's prideful self, legalistic self, spiritual elite self, racist self, whatever, self-centered self, self-righteous self, whatever that is that you can't let go of. And maybe it's just, there's a fear of letting go of it because all of a sudden you're going to lose control of something or whatever. Let me tell you where you find freedom. You find it at the foot of the cross. And when you find out that Jesus accepts you, not because of you, but because of what he's done, the price that's been paid, then it allows you to accept others and to love others. And that's where some of you need to be this morning. And if that's where you, you, you need to be at, the steps are open for you to come and pray. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to be your Savior, if you've never repented of sin and asked God for forgiveness of sin and asked the Lord to make things right between you and Him, listen, the cross was enough. That's why Jesus went to the cross for you, to die for your sins, to die for everything that is keeping you from God. And this morning, that forgiveness that new life is available to you. You say, how do I get it? Listen, I want you to pray with me. Say, Lord Jesus, at this moment, I put my faith and my trust in you alone. Not in me. Not good enough. Can't earn it. Can't work for it. I need forgiveness, Lord, so I repent of my sin. I put my faith and my trust in you alone. And would you save me from myself and save me from an eternity without God, without you? and give me salvation. I receive it. Thank you, Jesus. If you just prayed that with me, I want you to take out your worship guide 
and I want you to fill it out. I want you to check the box that says this morning I prayed to receive Christ. And for the rest of you, look at me. I, I've been very honest with you today. I, I've been very vulnerable in a lot of ways. To be, uh, I just, I think there's something powerful about authenticity, and I'm not bragging. Trust me. I think we're all called to be authentic about our lives and about our struggles and the things that we've been through. And all of us are we're wrestling with something in here that Christ has died for. And that wrestling causes in many times for us to keep others from experiencing spiritual freedom. And it's rooted in pride and it's sin and it's fear and it's all that other stuff. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm loving the journey that God's had me on for so many years. It's just, Lord, I, I just want to continue to die to me, die to self, so that you can live your life powerfully through me. And just, I don't want even others to put their look on me. I want, when they see me, I want them to see Christ. And not so I can pat my back, look, look what people see. No. There's no joy there. There's no freedom there. That, that's just, that's a road to bondage and slavery when we let Christ live his life through us, ah, it's freedom. So I've asked Jason to sing this song. If you need to come and pray, it's a great time to do this. Let's just worship him. And I want to talk about, at the end of the service, I'm going to talk about Boston, how we're going to engage there in just a moment. So stay with us. Let's stand.